Today's scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. You can also read along on page 7 of your virtual bulletin. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do not do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of God. Not the most encouraging passage for celebrating 10 years. Um, thank you all for who are involved. Rarely does a surprise uh, get past me, but um, I absolutely did not expect to um, just receive that grace from all of you. Thank you so much. You know, 10 years, I, I don't like celebrating these kind of things. I'm a celebrator. I love celebrating things. I don't like celebrating these kind of things because um, they have, a, they have a tendency, we tend to look back on like all the things that we accomplished and we're really just starting to move. And so I don't want you to be under the impression that we're just going to rest and look back and think about all the things. But I also believe that there's tremendous... Um, there's a tremendous sense of entitlement when you don't celebrate um, because you're ignoring all that God has done. And um, I'm so glad that you were able to fill the gap um, to all of our leaders here who, um, who remembered. So thank you. Um, and we'll certainly try to celebrate um, again uh, together at some other time. But we're so grateful. I'm so grateful, deeply grateful for all of you who have been a part of this journey. And it has been a journey. Um, now, uh, um, gosh, we, we don't have a lot of time, uh, so we're going to have to speed this up. You know, the worst part about preaching is you spend like 25 hours on something, and it only goes like 35 minutes, but we're going to have to, the worst is when you have to actually cut that short, so I'm going to do my best. Um, rather than speeding up, I'm just going to cut things out a little bit, and um, make sure that we all get out here at a decent hour, all right? 
the book of Genesis, we've been looking at it because we're, we're in a new series. And the series is really, we're taking all the difficult passages of the Old Testament. Um, and do you know that there are churches that actually don't preach from the Old Testament? That's otherworldly to me. I don't understand that. Um, but there are churches that don't like to preach from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with tremendous narratives about creation and fall and redemption and glory. And so you have to look at the Old Testament. You have to look at these passages. But there's a lot of disturbing passages, passages that have confused so many people. They've actually turned away from the church and used these passages as reasons for why they don't believe that God is good. Well, uh, we'd like to differ here. Um, we're going to submit and propose to you that um, we need to look at it more closely. And so we're not afraid of looking at these passages. We wanted to provide a sample. We're going to be looking at, over the, over the course of 30-plus weeks, passages that people have looked at and said, oh, that is, why is it even in the Bible? It's in, why would God want to present himself this way? We start with Genesis. We're only two weeks in. Genesis is about beginnings. <clears throat> you got like the first day. You have the first man. You have the first marriage. Uh, you have... Um, then you have the first sin, and then you have the first murder today. That's what we're going to look at. This book gives us a very particular perspective and almost an explanation for all the evil and oppression and injustice in our world today. And so there's three things we're going to look at in brevity. One, the hiddenness of sin. Two, the power of sin. And lastly then, what is the victory over sin? The hiddenness of sin, the power of sin, and then what is our victory over sin? <clears throat> um, first, we're going to look at the hiddenness of sin. Verse 7, God says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. You see, Cain and Abel, they were brothers. If you've never read the Bible before, if you've never heard of this passage before, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Cain and Abel, they were brothers. And on the outside, they were actually very similar. I mean, they come from the same family. Both of them were trying to obey God. Both of them trying to worship God. Both of them actually gave. They were trying to be generous in their own way. Uh, so both of them appear to have had a relationship with God, but on the inside, something was going on with Cain. And if you look more closely at this passage, uh, this is not a narrative where uh, this is not a narrative where Cain is living this wild life and this debaucherous life and, and Abel's like this angel and, and he's just saving people and stuff like that. The only difference between these two brothers, apart from their names, is that Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. That's really the only difference. Um, both of them offered their incomes to God. But God blessed Abel. God showed favor to Abel and, and he didn't favor Cain. Why? Now think about this. <clears throat> uh, this is an ancient agrarian society. It's a farming culture. And so your wealth is based on what you grew. Your wealth is based on what you raised. So if you had a good harvest, or if you raised lots of livestock, you were wealthy. So your success is built on the success of the harvest or the birth of new livestock. That determined your salary. That determined your income. Now think about this. If you raise crops, if you raise livestock, you can tithe then in one of two ways. One way you can tithe is you take an inventory at a given point in time, you take a snapshot of everything that you've raised, and you gave 10% of that. That's what a tithe meant, it's 10%. So you gave 10% of what you raised. So if you saw 10, if you're, if you're a shepherd, and you have 10 new livestock, you tithe one of them, in a sense, right? That's, that's a tithe. Um, and uh, verse 3, it says that Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. He took an inventory, 
He said, I, made, I raised this much, I grew this much, I'm going to take a portion of that, and he gave it to the Lord, right? Nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. In other words, he gave from what he raised. But in verse 4, and this is really the second way you can give, Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn flock. Now, if you give from your firstborn, the firstborn, the first fruits, what, what you're saying is that I don't really know how I'm going to do the rest of the year. I don't know if I'm going to have one that might be the only, you know, livestock I raised that year. It could be a bad year, right? So if you only gave, you only, if you only have two new births and you already gave up one, then you've actually tithed 50%. And you don't really know how you're going to live going forward for that year. And yet the author in Hebrews chapter 11 says that Abel gave a better sacrifice by faith. What by faith? I mean, what did he see beneath that visible reality of living day to day and year by year, subsistence farming, subsistence uh, shepherding? What gave him the, what did he see that, that Cain didn't see? What did he trust that Cain didn't trust? What does that mean? Cain, he believed in God. He was actually talking with God in this passage. But Abel gave by faith because he trusted that means that he trusted in promises, the promises of God. He had a relationship with God because in a relationship, you've got to trust. And he literally was putting his money where his mouth was. He trusted God, and so he trusted his promises. He knew God. He knows the character of God, and so he was living in line with what he knew. Now, that is a very different kind of belief. You can have two people. They believe in God. Both can believe in God, and yet, what does it mean to have a faith like that? It's a very different kind of faith. It gives birth to trust and gratitude and joy. God is your priority here. Now, think about this. Your reason for giving it all is either going to be in response to the promise of salvation or as a means to salvation. You get me? You're either going to give because you trust that God looks with you with favor and he's looking, with you on, with, looking on you with favor, or you're going to give, in other words, because if I don't give, then God's not going to favor me. Right? Those are the two ways that we oftentimes give. Now, if you think about that, you're either going to be thankful, you're either going to give because you're thankful for God's love, or you're actually giving in order to earn God's love. Cain worked hard to earn it. He gave to earn it. So when he gave, it felt there was almost a sense of entitlement. You see this in his anger. There's a sense of, I deserve the favor of God. You see, that kind of giving, that kind of relationship, you're never, it's never going to produce trust. A lot of us are in the working world. Actually, most of us or all of us are here working. You could work really, really hard to gain the favor of those people that you work under. That doesn't mean you trust them. That doesn't mean you love them. I mean, you're giving your sweat and your sometimes tears, closeted tears a lot of times. You're working really, really hard to win the favor of somebody, um, and that gives you a sense of entitlement. You see this when you receive your bonus. When you receive your bonus, a lot of times we're like, man, I deserve more than that, we say. Right? Um, what happens when someone gets promoted and gets passed to you? Right? That kind of giving actually makes you more resentful, makes you more angry. But Abel, he gave out of gratitude. There was a relationship there. So when he gave, it hurts. 
I mean, 50% of what you make in a year, maybe even 100% of what you earn in a year, that's going to humble you. It made him humbler. It made him more reliant. He was trusting and relying on a promise that God made. Both were doing what God wanted. They were obeying God in a sense. But what's at the heart of each person's core motivation? What was motivating each person? For Abel, it was a relationship. And so in verse 4, the Lord looked with favor on, uh, on Abel. In other words, what that means is there was a relationship with Abel. But in verse 5, Cain, he's angry and he's jealous because why? There was an entitlement. There was deserving. Why was he jealous? I mean, why was he jealous? Why do we ever get jealous? Our anxiety, our anger, our jealousy reveals what you love. Your anger in cases, in situ- if you've ever been in a situation like this, where you're kind of comparing yourself with another person because you feel like you deserve favor, you feel entitled to something here, and somebody else received that, right? That anger reveals what you actually love. It reveals your love. Some of us, we go to God to get more of God. So God is the gift. You go to God because you want more of God. That's a relationship. But it's because God is so sufficient in your life that having more of him is what you need. But then there are people who go to God for things. And so you give in order to receive from God. God isn't enough. God is insufficient in that sense to you. You're, so you're either going to give out of a sufficient, the sufficiency of God, God is more than enough for you, and your relationship then is the priority, the ultimate priority in your life. It orders all of your other loves, or you're giving out of uh, the insufficiency of God because you need something else. And you're trying to strike, you're, you're negotiating, you're bargaining with God. You see that? Um, it's a difference between joy and anger. It's the difference between uh, an attitude of gratitude versus an attitude of entitlement. It's the difference between life and death. That's what we see here, actually. Cain's, they always hate Abel's. Why? Because Cain's, they say, man, I work hard. I, I try hard. I honor God. I worship God. I give too. When somebody else receives that favor, you get angry because your obedience is more about your own fulfillment. You're not coming for God. You're not coming to God for God as the blessing. You're coming for, to God as something, for something else as the blessing. You see that? And, and, and that's, that's crazy. If you think about it, I mean, sin is insanity, right? Because you're coming to God and you're saying, you are not enough. I want something else. So I'm giving you. And that's insanity if you think about it. What's a symptom of cainness? I'm going to give you a few. That constant comparison with others next to you, that attitude, it's an internal attitude of superiority over somebody. It's really driven by inferiority. Um, A lot of us are serving in the church, and you've grown up in a culture where you're supposed to serve. That service fatigue, that often happens because you're trying to get something out of that service, and, and, and it's really, you're, you're putting more weight on your role and your title than it's really meant to provide for you. It distorts even the good things that you do, you see that? Because the motivation for any of these things, it's always subterranean, it's hidden, and it's so deep. But in verse seven, God says to Cain, 
Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching. It's this imagery. If you actually look into that word, it's an imagery of, of, of a predatory animal that's in the shadows and just ready to pounce. These things are strong, and they, they're instinctive. So it's kind of instinctively waiting in the shadows so that as you pass by, it's ready to jump and pounce on you. But you're not suspecting of it. You have no clue. You have no idea. In other words, sin is subtle. It's hidden. Yeah, I know it's hidden. I know it's subtle. No, you don't understand. Sin is deadly because it's hidden. It'll kill you. Sin drives you insane. Sin is insanity because it's hidden. Sin is, is, is insanity because you assume you're not a sinner. I mean, we all say generally we're a sinner, but some, the moment somebody says, well, hey, I wanted to talk to you about the specific issue that I have with you, we start to bristle, we start to tense up, we start to get really, really defensive. That posture changes. Why? Because sin is so hidden. And more likely, other people see it before you see it. You know, a wise person will listen. A wise person will, will hear. You see that? Sin is so hidden. Sin is so subtle. Um, sin is subterranean, and it distorts even the good things that you do. That's what happens, right? Uh, and and it's, sin is deadly because it's hidden. But then God says to Cain, you must master it. Sin is like a tumor, and, and it begins undetectable, unrecognizable at first. But if you don't diagnose it, soon enough. If you don't address it, it starts to grow. And uh, then it starts to devour you and consume you until eventually it destroys you. So you can't, I'm not asking you to do this because it's a favor to me. Don't rationalize your sinfulness. Don't rationalize even those small things that you're like, oh, you know what? Some maturity will take care of that. Maturity will not take care of that. Maturity will not take care of some of those even subtle sins that maybe only you kind of deep inside know, but you figure, like, if I just grow up a little bit, it'll go away. Maturity will not take, away, take that away. Uh, eventually, what happens is you get ensnared by sin. You get trapped by sin. And all that hiddenness, all that secrecy, all the subtlety, it's crouching. One day, it starts to really, really take shape and once it takes shape, it's going to pounce on you and devour you. You see that? What's the power of sin? That's the second thing we're going to look at. Verse 7, God says, sin is crouching. It desires to have you. It's abiding in you. There's an indwelling sin. Even if you're a believer, there's an indwelling sin. The power of sin, although has been defeated, that pollution and the indwelling nature of sin is still there. And if you don't deal with that, if you don't master it, which is what God is telling Cain, if you don't master it, it will devour you. At first, sin is just crouching. It seems formless. You know, you really can't even put your finger on it sometimes. There's just little clues and hints. But it's inevitable. If you don't address it, if it goes unaddressed, one day it does take shape, it grows, it's no longer going to be subtle. Right? It's no longer just going to be inside. It's no longer going to be subterranean. What happens is it starts to unravel in your life. It desires to have you, so it overtakes you, pounces you, then it just devours you and consumes you. Now think about this. If you see an animal crouching, if, you, if you're walking down at night, if you're walking through your neighborhood, you see a large animal crouching, you know you're in trouble. 
What do you do? You, you take off, right? You run. Because you know that if you didn't recognize that crouching animal or if you don't take off and run, you become food. You know that. The less you see, the less that you're aware of the location of potential sins, the identity of potential sins in your life, the less that you're able to own these things. People, some of you, people have been talking to you, you know, you know, they may be talking to you, and it could be multiple people talking to you or a person talking to you that you know well talking to you many times, right? And yet you're still deflecting and you're still kind of evading it. So you're, you know what you're doing? You view the grace that God is offering you to master your sin. You're, you're taking that grace and you're, you see that as crouching and you're running away from that. When in reality, what you should be running away from is the sin. What you should be fleeing and, and departing from is the sin. You see that? One day, it's going to stop crouching. It's going to pounce. Sin is such a, a, a grip, a hold of your life. It becomes more and more of who you are. It actually becomes who you are. Um, and it becomes less and less of how you were designed by God to reflect his image. So in essence, all sin starts to... Uh, begin the process of dehumanizing you. Becomes, you. You become lesser than what you were created to be. So that's the devour. You start to corrode. You start to erode parts of your life. You say, man, how did I get here? Like 10 years, 12, you start out as a teen, uh, and you may get through it. You know, certain sins, you may get through it, right? Um, Maybe the damage or the consequences, you, you, you're just fortunate. God is just gracious. What happens is after a while, the damage grows. Maybe in your 20s, you start to lose some relationships. Maybe you let it go into your 30s or 40s. You start to lose big ways. And you say, how did I get here? None of us wake up. Cain himself didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to kill my brother. Right? Nobody wakes up that way. Nobody wakes up and says, today I feel like killing six million people. Sin starts with the the subtlety and the hiddenness that we justify and allow. Eventually, you start to enable it. It's crouching. It's at your door. One day, it has you. It unravels. It unveils itself. We don't really know through this passage how God showed favor to Abel. We don't really know. All we know is that it must have been visible because Cain was upset about it. And Cain, as a result, was visibly upset about it. Why do we know that? Verse 6, God says to Cain, why is your face looking like that? Why is your face downcast? It's visible, right? What does that tell you? God and his patience. I mean, we're going to talk about the patience of God in a minute. But God sees you. You know, everyone here has something that they're discontent about. Everyone here has something that may be upset about. There's always something in our lives that we're angry about. God sees you in that anger. Anger in itself is not sin. But sin is crouching. And the moment you decide to react and respond in an ungodly way, even the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Implied in there is what? Anger itself is not sin, but sin is crouching. And the moment it takes you, overtakes you, and you decide to respond or react to that anger, sin now starts to have you, and that corrosion begins. Why was Cain so entitled? If you look at the names, there's a little bit of a clue. 
Abel means, it's the Hebrew word for breath or vapor. In other words, Abel is just this kind of nothing, worthless. But the name Cain means, it's, it, it connotes or implies he's a go-getter. Cain means I get things. I acquire things. I work for things, and I succeed in getting these things. Cain was a success. Another way of saying that is Cain was a winner. Cain was a killer, literally. <laughs> but Abel was a loser. He was nothing. And so here's Cain, the winner, in all the stages of his life, all the different parts of his life, Cain's always been the winner. He's always been the favored one. And he's looking over at his brother, this loser, this nothing, this vapor, this mist, this breath. Why does God love him the way he does? And it made him angry. Cain overlooked one of the biggest patterns throughout the Bible, that God always has his eye on the loser. God always has his eye on the nothings and the, and the, the nobodies. And most likely for Cain, Cain was not a loser. Cain was a winner. And, and so he was angry not because of him being a nobody. He was angry because he was such a success. And nowhere here does it imply that Cain was a bad person. Cain was diligent. Cain gave he was trying to worship God. He's like all of us here. He's trying to do and live like a Christian. And what does this tell you? A lot of us focus more on what it means to live like a Christian than actually loving God. Living like a Christian as opposed to loving Christ. That's Cain. And as a result, what produced in him was a deep envy because I'm a winner. I have these gifts. You know, for a lot of us, we're accomplished or you have the right pedigree. You have, you just, your, your academic educational pedigree is stellar. You have all the right connections in business. Some of you, it's all about doctrine. I have great doctrine. I was brought up with really, really good doctrine. That's like a, a really nerdy, and I don't know why that's a thing of pride for a lot of us, but some of us have that. We're brought up with that. Some of us, we're like, man, I just know my Bible. I'm a good person. I pray and I read my Bible every day and I have all I have all the right things to say in any type of uh, Bible study or anything like that. And yet, uh, Cain, why is Abel receiving God's favor? What's the problem? The issue is not that Cain was successful. I don't want you to misunderstand. It's not that Cain had wealth or that Cain was successful. The issue is, isn't that Cain didn't give enough. There's nothing that implies he didn't give enough. Right? It was why he gave. Cain relied on his success. He couldn't stand losing to his brother, who was weaker, this nobody. His success defined him. His success is what made him feel approvable, which is why he was so angry at God, because God wouldn't approve, in a sense. But Abel was valued by God, and so Cain, just, he just loses himself, and he loses it, because he couldn't understand that God always is looking for the weaker. It's the prerequisite. A lot of us come here thinking, like it's new life, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get my act together, I'm older now, I'm gonna go back to the church. A lot of us have been away from the church a long time, we came back and we said, that's gonna be my life. But the reality is, is that, you know, it's not about your record. It's not about your merit. Abel's the weaker, he's the nobody, and God is all, the prerequisite to having a relationship with God 
is to be a nobody, a spiritual nobody, to say that I am weak, I am a failure. Now I'm gonna have to skip around a little bit, but I'm gonna tell you, how do you, how do you get victory then over sin? Because we're so much like Cain. We're not like Abel, we're like Cain. I'm gonna give you a couple things. One, verse six, look at the gentleness of God. Notice he doesn't accuse, he counsels. Much like he did in Genesis chapter three with Adam and Eve hiding and shivering and just so weak and he's looking for them, he's looking for Cain. And he doesn't start out accusing Cain. He counsels Cain. He initiates with Cain. Cain is like spiraling downward. He pursues Cain and he initiates with Cain. He approaches Cain. He's so deeply personal and he reasons with Cain. This guy who's like angry to the point of insanity and yet God is reasoning with him. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face so down? And, and like a father, I mean, this is God acting as a father. He says, I see you and you're hurting. And do you know, sin is right there. Sin is ready to have you. But I know you. I can, you can master this. You were created in my image. You can master this. I, I want you to master this. I'm hurting for you. The next time that you're angry, the next time that you're envious, next time you're jealous, rather than letting your imagination and your heart take you away to a place that is really spiraling downward, and in that moment, it's temporary insanity, but it's because at the heart of us is insanity. We love to sin. The next time you kind of spiral downward, stop there and consider God in your circumstance reasoning with you. Remember this passage. Look at his patience. Look at his gentleness, trying to teach you and counsel you, trying to get you out of this. Not trying to get you out of the mess of Abel, but trying to get you out of the anger and the pride and the, and the self-righteousness that's creating this envy and, and pain. He says, I want you to get over your pain. I want you to master over these things. Notice, he doesn't say, well, Abel, Cain, why are you so downcast? I mean, you're good. You got your, you're all, I love you too. You're so lovable. You know, a lot of us, we say, oh, man, I, I don't feel, this is the typical counsel we tend to give one another. Man, I feel so ugly. No. You're so beautiful. You're so pretty. Right? Is that going to heal you? Now, you got part of it right. We all need somebody outside of us telling us you're beautiful. We all need that. We were created for community, and so you can't validate yourself, right? But that's not what God does here. He says, you're in sin. I want you to master it. I want you to receive the power to master it. Look at his tenderness, rooting for Cain. Look at his wisdom. But then look at his courage. He's not afraid to confront Cain. He's addressing Cain. And in the end, verse 8, Cain lacks that inner security and, and assurance in that tenderness, in that wisdom, in that courage, in that love. And so he murders his brother. And he murders his brother. I mean, that is, that is unfathomable. And, he, and even after that, what does God do? Does he rush to indict Cain? No, what does he do? He says, he says where's your brother? He's still counseling. It's not like he doesn't know. In fact, he says, your brother's blood cries out to me. No one knew what Cain did, but God saw. 
God sees it. Abel's blood covers, is covered, and covers and absorbed by the ground. And, and, and God knew. God saw everything. Verse 9 and 10. Notice, he doesn't say, where is Abel? He once came to know what he did. Where is your brother? He once came to see this insane, unnatural. Sin takes us to crazy places. Even the most subtle and hidden things. Because it's subtle, because it's hidden. Sin takes us to crazy places. And he says, you know, he doesn't say, where is Abel? He says, where's your brother? Verse 9 and 10, he, say, he uses the word brother three times. He's constantly reminding Cain of his betrayal. All that secrecy, all that hate and plotting and violence, that injustice and, and self-absorption and self-justifying and hiding. He said, I see it all. I've known it all. I see it all. I'm, but he says, I'm gentle, and I'm, but I'm also just. But I'm also patient. And so he carefully goes to Cain and he says, these sins, Abel's blood is, is crying out, and it's only by sheer grace right now that you and everybody has the opportunity to turn from their sin. What is our only hope? Centuries later, there was another son, a lot like Abel. He honored God, but perfectly. He obeyed God, gave to God, loved God wholly, worshiped God reverently and eternally, obeyed God flawlessly, and he makes an offering. He makes a sacrifice to God. He tithed everything. He didn't sit there and take an inventory of what he had. He left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite, his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. The author of Hebrews says, this person's blood speaks even better than the blood of Abel. On one hand, you see if Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the greater Cain. All little brothers look up to their older brother. They might not admit it, but they do. Abel looked up to Cain, and he was murdered. He was killed. But he trusted God, and he gave, and he gave, and he gave. Ultimately, it costed him his life, if you think about it. Because of his love for God and what he gave, he paid a price for it. But what Abel was doing by faith was looking ahead to a greater older brother who would redeem him, who would, who would demonstrate real justice for him, whom we can look up to. We have an older brother in Cain. Jesus Christ is the greater Cain. We, as little brothers, can look up to Cain, the greater Cain in Jesus Christ, who said, you're weaker, you are nobody, let me give everything I've got to you. I'm going to give it all up for you. I'm going to sacrifice everything for you. That's the greater Cain. That's a greater older brother. He sacrificed his life for his younger brothers. Abel looked up to Cain, killed. We look up to the greater Cain in Christ, and we live. You know why? Because Jesus then also becomes, on the other hand, the greater Abel. Jesus Christ, Abel was a shepherd. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. Abel was murdered by Cain. Jesus Christ came into a world full of Cain's, religious people working and striving to earn the approval of God, and they were so angry at the sight of Christ that they eventually hung up on a cross, crucified him naked, humiliated him, 
and devoured him. He was devoured. And do you know that even while he was on the cross, it wasn't just a religious that abandoned him and betrayed him. Judas, all the while Judas, right? Judas, his friend. Jesus looked at him and treated him as a brother. Do you know that on the day he was betrayed by Jesus, he fed Judas, washed his feet, treated him like a brother. And yet Judas betrays him. Because the sight of Christ, knowing Christ threatened him and his livelihood. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27 says that the blood of Jesus speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries for justice. And God is just. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am the only one who is ever truly innocent. I am more innocent than Abel could have ever hoped or dreamed to be in this earth. I have lived a fuller, complete, perfect, obedient life more than anybody else on the face of the earth. And yet I'm being treated with a curse. I'm bearing the heavy weight of the burden of blood and sacrifice. My blood is now covering the ground and being absorbed. Jesus Christ yet on the cross mastered over sin, didn't he? on the cross, tempted in every way. People taunting him, mocking him, telling him, come down if you are who you say you are. And yet he didn't flinch. He absorbed the cross in full. He absorbed the pain and the abandonment and the rejection that all of us Cain's in the world deserve as the greater Abel. And so his blood covering over the earth covers over us. And if those of us who then trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, what that means is now I'm going to want, abandon away my works righteousness. I'm going to abandon all the things that I'm constantly doing to pursue approval. The reason why we, we want at work, we want the approval of our bosses, is it's a cosmic thing. We're desperate for the approval of God. And so we're trying to substitute that because we, don't, we know we don't deserve God. We're not, we don't have a relationship with God. So we look for it from other people. We pour into our work. We pour into our relationships. We're constantly working. And when we don't get what we feel like we deserve, what we're entitled to, we get so angry and we get so jealous when other people have it. We get so envious when other people have it. The gospel is the end of jealousy. Why? Because God the king of the universe has bestowed tremendous favor on you because on the cross, Jesus Christ was cursed and rejected, left for dead, and bled and died. It's his blood that covers over our sins. If you're, always living, if you're living a life always trying to please God with your record, with your goodness, with your works, that's why we're so desperate for the love of other people. You're not able you may feel weak, but that's not being able. You're actually Cain. And that leads to joylessness and, and overwork and anxiety and envy, pride, self-righteousness. Because you're always working ultimately to earn the love of God that way. It actually makes you more resentful and bitter. But if you look on the cross, on the cross we see the justice of God that we deserved. Jesus, the innocent, is bleeding to death. On the cross, you also see the grace of God and the love of God because he did it for you. God made a way for us to be saved, for us Cain's to receive favor 
Jesus' blood then cries out for justice. But he cries out for justice in a way, not for condemnation, because he took on the justice. He cries out for forgiveness and grace. 1 John chapter 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What does it say? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and loving to forgive us. I mean, God is loving, but that's not what it says. He is faithful and kind to forgive us our sins. That's, God is faithful and kind, but that's not what the text says. It says the text, the text says that he is faithful and just. You know why? God is so just. It would be unjust for God to hold back his forgiveness if you trust in him because Jesus Christ already paid out the justice. God would never make, Jesus, make you pay for a crime that Jesus already paid for. That crime, the sin, the insanity has already been dealt with, already been addressed. On the cross, Jesus not only mastered sin by remaining humble and patient and loving and kind and good and faithful, all the fruit of the Spirit, you see that. Jesus demonstrates that on the cross, and yet on the cross, he mastered sin once and for all by dying the death that we deserved so that we could have everything that he deserved in him. That's called union. Trusting Jesus, that's called union. Loving Christ, that's called union. How would that make you? You're going to, on the cross, wrath, the wrath of God, the justice of God, and the mercy and love of God embrace on the cross of Christ. He dies so that we can live. It's on the basis. Jesus Christ is the ultimate defense advocate for you you know when you go to trial and you you commit a crime you have a defense attorney scripture likens christ as the ultimate defense attorney for you you know why because he says i'm not appealing to you father although you are loving and kind and good and faithful i'm not appealing to you on the basis of that love although you are loving or kindness although you are or goodness although you are or faithfulness although you are i am i'm appealing to you on the basis of your justice that sin has been dealt with by me on the cross and he is mine and she is mine. He is my brother. She is my sister. And I am asking you on the basis of your justice to forgive him. How will you confront then and look at other Cain's in your world and your life? Will you disdain them and look at them like they're inferior? inferior? Then you're a Cain yourself. Or will you confront them and correct them with the love of Christ? Confront them with the word of Christ? Win them with the grace of Christ? That's what makes the church one. All these different people, all of us Cains, fighting to be noticed and approved, to be humbled by the gospel which then turns us, not inwardly, but outwardly towards others with love and that same kindness and goodness and faithfulness. Over our next 10 years, my prayer is that we will all move towards a greater sense of oneness as a church because we're really, really just beginning. I mean, 10 years is really, you're just starting the engine. We're just moving. My prayer is that the love of God and the grace of God in Christ and your union with Christ will then draw you ever so closely to God and his heartbeat 
what, what his burdens are, what grieves him, and your life then will be shaped then in the image of Christ because of his deep, deep love for you. You can rest. Stop working so hard to earn it. It's been earned already. Trust that. Let's pray together.